Welcome to the Chasing Brighter podcast, a show about self-discovery and lifestyle tips for moms. We are your hosts. I'm Kelly, a wife, mom of two, and an independent consultant with my own company in Chicago. And I'm Jessica, a wife, mom of three, and owner of my own outpatient mental health practice in Nevada. You're about to go on a journey of self-discovery as we chase a brighter you. Every single week, we will bring you new episodes that will cover everything from lifestyle and tips to more serious conversations about grief, life, and hardships. Whether it's a duo episode or we have a guest, you are guaranteed to pick up a new tool or feel less alone. This one is for the moms that have forgotten to make time to keep their spark alive. Allow this show to be a reminder to always keep chasing a brighter version of you. Let's get into it. Welcome to this month's book club. As we have been focusing on healing and coping with loss and grief, we have decided to choose the book, The Year of Magical Thinking by Joan Didion. Enjoy. So Kelly, this book, you did you listen to it or read? I listened to the audio. Yeah, I did as well. So it was a little bit of a production with music, which made it very melancholic. It was weird. It was like the toward the end of every chapter, the music would come in like do 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 do. Piano, yeah. It was it was piano. I felt like this book was like so. If, if we summarize it, Joan was married. She is a famous author, and her husband is also John Dunn. John Gregory Dunn is a famous author who wrote a lot of books and a lot of screenplays. He wrote the screenplay to the seventies movie with Chris Christopherson, The Star is Born, you know, and there was another one. What, Up Close and Personal is the other one he did? I'm quizzing you. Anyway, while their adult daughter was in a coma in the hospital, they came home, were sitting at dinner, and John died of a heart attack suddenly. And so this book is about Joan's grief. And I believe it's called The Year of Magical Thinking because she had like a duality of like, on the one hand, planning his funeral and he's no longer around. On the other hand, preparing things for him to come back. So it was like she was like waiting for him to come back. So she wasn't, it was kind of this, just this magical thinking of replaying over and over and over in her head the day he died, three days before he died. What could she have done to prevent it? And then also what she could do to prepare for him to come back. Yes. Yes. The other part that's layered in there is during this whole time, her daughter's in a coma and her daughter is ill and in and out of being ill. And it's, it's a year of, it's a year of that. Cause I feel like that also distracted her in a lot of ways. So her daughter, Quintana had the flu that turned into pneumonia, that turned into septic shock, they induced a coma, then she had a brain bleed, then she ended up having five surgeries, and then months and months of intensive care. And, and it was I, up and uh, down. This all happened December 2003, and her daughter died in 2005 from a heart attack. Did you know that? No, I didn't. But what I found to be interesting was the daughter was like really never a hundred percent and then her and her husband moved to California and 
then she collapses when they come out of the terminal. Yeah, she was the the daughter was feeling better. They had the memorial. They were going to walk on the beach doing better. And she even said, I encourage them to go get away, go to California. And when she got off the plane, she collapsed and had the brain blade. And then she was in UCLA Medical Center. Yeah. Yeah. Who lived in New York. Then Joan relocated to California to help for months and months as she was recovering there. And then they air vacked her at some point to New York. Yeah. Yeah. Where she was in like a rehab facility and then lived on her own. So she lived. So she was out on her own and everything 2004, fall 2004. And she lived like another year, but died of a massive heart attack. And, and Joan Didion has since passed away. Passed she away, yeah. 21 at, 2000, sorry, 21 at the age of 87. But she wrote another book about the medical and emotional nightmare of losing her daughter. And that book is called Blue Nights. So I'm sure that's another uplifting. Oh, that sounds so horrible. So this book was, I thought it was so beautiful because it was a way to hear in someone's grief and how we don't make sense and how she's going over and over and over in her mind if there were signs and things she could have known about her husband and like almost like yes. being of looking through his things and his pockets and what he ate and what he said and like in the 80s a doctor said you're going to die of a heart attack because he had that defect or whatever of yeah. the widow so he had already had heart surgeries. The Widowmaker, yeah. 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 So it is a beautifully told story. And you can tell she is a extremely well-gifted writer. And I was also thinking about, like, one example of where I was like, wow, she is so gifted as a writer, but also she must have been keeping a journal. She talked about there's a lot of moments where she was retrospective in terms of like something that had happened. And she talked about taking a note about the medical conditions of her daughter on the grocery list. And she went into the detail about like what was specifically on the grocery list that day, like what she was going to be making and where she was going to the grocery when her husband was still alive. And just that I, I think what she's able to do through her craft of writing is you are with her when she's lost her husband and you're with her in her mind and how she's thinking. And she's describing it in a very non-emotional way, you know, which I thought was kind of cool for a person who maybe hasn't, you know, like I haven't lost a husband. So like, then it's like learning from her, like what you will be going through and how, how real she made it feel. She, you felt like you were in the room with her living through these things. Yeah. And how, so I found it fascinating looking up her and John's life. So her, yes, yes. They were at the height of like 60s, like creators and writer yes. authors and movie makers. And so they were kind of very, I feel like kind of bohemian. So they like lived in California, in Malibu. They, ba- they bounced back and forth. Hawaii. And they lived in like Ma- they lived in Maui or, or in Hawaii somewhere for a long time. And so when she 
flew to California to stay. Well, well, is it Quintana, right? Quintana is that mm-hmm. how they say? was in the hospital. Everything was bringing up memories, right? So she kept her mind purposefully in the past. So she wouldn't have to think about her daughter. She wouldn't have to think about John not being there. And so she's driving by and she'd see a restaurant or a billboard or whatever. And so you also hear beautiful stories about their life and who they knew and their daughter because she was focusing on the past. So she didn't have to live kind of in the grief and sorrow of the present. Or that's well, And this is I think this is why this is such a critically acclaimed book is because what she did was it's her memoir. But it's her memoir woven into what's happening in real time. And so it was so, so well done in that way. And I don't know if that was really her intent, but just how she crafted it was just amazing. It was beautiful in that way. I don't, that's why I'm wondering if she kept a journal because some of the details. Yeah, she wrote like, there's actually like, she actually has a book that was published in 2001, but she has a book called like North or South, sorry, South and West. And it says Joan Didion has always kept notebooks. Okay. Overheard dialogue, interviews, drafts of essays, copies of articles. And so that is a book of like excerpts from her notebooks kept in the 70s. But anyway, so yeah, because she... I mean, we say they're writers and authors, but they were journalists, right? Like they yeah. wrote for publications. They wrote, she wrote for Time magazine. And it was the height in Vogue. And it was the height of publication journalism. And yeah. for those two to be such, you know, well-regarded writers, I just made a note that I felt like what was, what I liked about the book was they had a very, what I would call charmed life, lots of parties, traveling, living in LA, then moving to New York and bouncing back and forth. Like you were saying, living in Malibu. I've been a little too deep on Malibu lately where I realized like Malibu was this cool surfer, hippie neighbor. Or Jenkins read, is that why are you reading? No, I finished that book. I'm actually reading The Hill or listening to The Hills, which is a podcast on like murders in Malibu. But it was like the hip place that everybody went, but it wasn't like touristy. But yeah, the Hawaii thing, traveling to Europe, it was like, in some ways back then, journalists were somewhat royalty. I feel like, you know, like when she moved to LA to help her daughter recover in LA, she's living with like, or friends here, live in my house, stay here. I mean, when they were, when they were kicked out of their house, in California because of the rules of the place they had who was it like the widow of a famous Oscar winning guy she's like stay in my house and she left it totally furnished yeah I know you'll have parties but yeah that I think that was really fascinating they were at the height of of that kind of stuff 60s late 60s 70s I thought that was all really interesting and it's fascinating that she was a woman during that time, like that she did get the gig with time. And what are your thoughts about, I think she tried, I thought she did a really great job of talking about her 40-year marriage in a way that was respectful toward John, but also alluding to like, it was really hard and not perfect. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
She, I agree. The other thing that I appreciated was even they have one child, but their daughter was adopted and talking about, you know, that process. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And I, cause she had said, you know, it, it's just interesting. I don't know if you thought about it in your own, right? I look at the lens of my life and the kids are gone and it's just my spouse and I, and it's just a different kind of relationship and how they made it through, right? Getting together, like getting married, having fun, building these careers, rearing a child. And then it's like the daily mundane life that they had created for themselves. And also how John was like pushing to go to Paris. And he was like, this will be the last time they ever go to Paris. And he was pushing and she didn't really want to go. And they went around Thanksgiving and, and he died like December 30th, right? Like around like December 30th on yeah. um, 2003. But he was pushing for them to go to Paris and then they did. And then he did die 30 days later. So it, like what we've been talking about so much, like with 4,000 weeks or like being in the present, like we only have today and we can't keep just pushing things off because we don't know how long we have here. Well, and the the whole like his death just was like, you know, like, to your point about the mundane, like they were just eating dinner and he died. I mean, I'm, without going into details where it was like, it wasn't some grandiose tragedy in some way. And in some ways, it's I feel like that made it harder for her. But then it wasn't because it was so unexpected. Yes. And I know you said grandiose tragedy, but I think what you were meaning was a like like a drawn out chronic. Or like a well, it wasn't like there was like some sort of an accident of sorts, right? right. Or like things and, and so I think that was why though, well, so something beyond our control in some ways the whole book was about her feeling like she had there was control over that he should have eaten something differently they should have gone to dinner here they should have like she's spending this time but in california we'd never moved to new york if they would have never moved to new york yeah like making these decisions on the things that would have changed the course of her life and just the other thing that this was where i wish i actually had the book but there is a clip that i felt like was very very much noteworthy. Oh, you have that. Okay. Until now, I had been able only to grieve, not mourn. Grief was passive. Grief happened. Mourning, the act of dealing with grief, required attention. Until now, there had been every urgent reason to obliterate any attention that might otherwise have been paid. Banish the thought. Bring fresh adrenaline to bear on the crisis of the day. I had passed an entire season during which the only words I allowed myself to truly hear were recorded. Welcome to UCLA. She just kept going to the hospital, right? And so she felt like grief was happening, but mourning was dealing with grief. Yeah. And I thought that was a really, especially since, you know, we've really spent this month talking about dealing with grief and her separating the two and that the, I almost think about grieving as like what you're going through and mourning is like how you're healing from it. Well, I, this reminds me, so she, her journey reminds me so much of Dr. Cherick's journey. Like Dr. Cherick talked about how she traveled around to other countries and learned about how they dealt with grief and mm -hmm. about death and dying. And so throughout, sprinkled throughout the book, Joan is going back and looking historically through 
the history of humanity on how we've dealt with death. And the most, the one that resonated with her most was, you know, Emily Post, who wrote, you know, how to, you know, what is that? Like and etiquette and all that stuff. And it had this whole list of what you do. And it's like when someone is grieving and they're at the funeral, it was like, say this, don't say this, don't offer them food, but bring them broth, bring them a blanket, sit them by a fire because they're going to be cold. And it was this whole list of like how to deal with someone who was grieving. And I think about too, you know, like, wasn't it at a time where you would wear like black for a year? Yeah. I mean, and and it's just interesting. We've been talking about that so much, but she was reading right about all of these other cultures and how you wail and you cry and you, this is what you're allowed to do. But like in our culture, you know, no one knows how to deal with grief. It's so much what we've been talking about that people are uncomfortable with it, that no one knows what to do with it, that it's not people don't know, yeah, how to how to support you. And also there's no space for you to mourn. Yes. I also found it interesting that she wrote every single medical term involved in anything in very great detail, which I think she must have been doing some medical reporting at some point, right? Yeah, she used so much medical terminology. I think picking this book was, I like that we take some adventurous leaps and choose different books based on, you know, what we loosely know about the book. Was this what you expected, Jess? No. Me either. The writing was not what I expected. It was not a straightforward memoir. Like it was all over the place, but I loved it. I really did love it. Like, because she does not outright say what's happening with her daughter. You have to like piece it together. And I think that you understand the scattered brain of someone in someone who's grieving. Very true. It's written very authentically. I was expecting because of the title. So you knew that she was experiencing loss. But I was expecting the book to be more inspirational, right? I'm thinking to the magical. Yeah, like, oh, my husband died. Everything's fine. I'm going to make it through. And here's what I'm going to do. Oh, like pretend. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Like all the things I did to like make my mind work magically to like get myself through this difficult time. And maybe that actually is why the book is called that is that, you know, the there's not a lot of magic. I mean, she even maybe talked about that, right? There was nothing she could do to bring her husband back. That was like the whole book was like you were saying. Well, and and I think it's like our brains are really powerful. And basically she was in denial, right? Yeah. She closed herself off to the acceptance. I mean, not consciously, but like the acceptance of the loss. You know, I think in hindsight, the book could have been called like my year in hell. Like it was a struggle for her. It was very difficult. It just wouldn't sold as many copies. My year of hell. Oh my gosh. I'm so sad. I'm still like mourning that um, Quintana died a year after she published the book. I'm sad. So, I mean, what a lot of loss for one person. Absolutely. 
But she kept producing and writing about it and sharing her story to help others because I think it is like, you know, I think I read somewhere that it said it's a, you know, beautiful portrait of loss and grief. And it, mm-hmm. it let us into um, that year after the death of her husband. And I think that can really help us be compassionate toward others who are grieving or we can find similarities and, and it normalizes our own experience. Yes. I think it helps. This book definitely has you walk in her shoes to know what she's feeling or how she's coping. So I would say that my takeaways from this book are it helps me understand loss and grief and what one person might be going through to be more compassionate and to know how to help another person. And then another kind of takeaway would be about being in the present. We have like her daughter got sick on the most freak thing of just the flu during the holiday season and ended up dying. And it's just like, we never know how long we have on this earth. And so how can we be present with the people in our lives right now? So those are kind of my takeaways. I like that, Jess. What are your takeaways? Don't judge a book by its cover. Yeah. Don't think you're going on a magical journey just because magic is in the title. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's one lesson I've learned on this book. But I think that I mentioned just like experiencing what somebody else is going through in terms of loss and grief, especially for a person like me who likes to not think about sad things. This was a good, a good book to pick in a lot of ways because I didn't cry. It's not emotionally grabbing and pulling at your heartstrings. It's very easy, approachable read about a person's experience. Yeah. Yeah. So if you want to know more about this book and hear more about what we have to say, check out our blog post at chasingbrighter.com or you can get the book yourself, whether you listen to it on Audible, Libby, get it at the library. We totally recommend the book, The Year of Magical Thinking by Joan Didion. Thanks for listening today. Don't forget to subscribe so you can hear our latest episodes as soon as they drop. And if you love today's episode, leave a review. We'd love to hear from you.